Well, as we do come to try and understand this word now and see God and his holiness, let's pray for his help, shall we? Father God, we've just read of the vision that Isaiah had of you in your glory, in your holiness. And we pray this morning as we look at this passage together that you would give us a vision of you in all of your glory, in all of your holiness. Help us to see you as you are. Help us to see ourselves as we are. And help us to respond to you and your call to us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were to use one word to describe um, Donald Trump, I wonder what it would be. Lots of words have been used in recent weeks to describe him. I don't know what yours would be. The trouble, of course, is our knowledge of uh, him is quite limited, isn't it? It's uh, what we see on the news. Um, uh, we see some of his interviews and speeches. We might even read some of his tweets. But um, unless we actually were to meet him in person, it's difficult to know the real man. Theresa May, obviously, um, uh, might have a better understanding of him now, having gone to meet him in person and uh, hold hands with him. Um, but I guess the only person who would really know him really well would be his wife, his children who've seen him day in, day out. They know the real person they've been in his presence. So far in this series on God, we've seen that God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he is everywhere. And last week we saw that he is eternal. But if you were to try and, and capture the essence of God in one word... What would it be? Well, I guess those who know better than most are those who are already in his presence. The heavenly beings, the the angels. And when Isaiah had this vision of God, he heard the angels describing him. And this is how they described him in verse 3. Have a look, uh, look down. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. But 800 years or so later, we read John's vision of heaven recorded in the book of Revelation. Uh, He too sees the angels. And what were they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The common word used to describe God in these two situations is holy. Both cases, they repeat it three times because it's so important. Holy is a description of God that we find throughout the book of Isaiah. But what does it actually mean? It's difficult to define because it really defines God himself. It is his essence, that which makes him God. But the best attempt is something like his otherness, the fact that he's set apart from every other human, every other heavenly being. As we've seen already in this series, God has many attributes that we do not have. And if we were to summarize all of those attributes in one, we would say God is holy. But let's explore this description of God a little bit more. In what way is God set apart? Well, God is set apart from all he has made, firstly, in his majesty. Have a look at what Isaiah writes in verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. 
And a few verses later in verse 5, he says, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. God is very different from the human King Isaiah, who we're told has just died. The only thing that most people remember about Isaiah is that he died in the year that Isaiah saw the Lord. If we read the book of Chronicles, we find out a little bit more about him. Actually, he did start well, but um, then he became unfaithful to God. Uh, his arrogance made him want to become a priest as well as a king, and he was afflicted with leprosy. Human kings come and go. I don't know how many of the, the 66 kings and queens uh, of England you could name, unless you've been studying history recently. How much could you tell me about any of them? But Isaiah saw the real king, the one above all others, above them in his majesty, above them in his power, above them because he rules over them and has done since the beginning of the world. But it's not just kings and queens or people in authority who are tempted to think they are more powerful than they really are. It's all of us, isn't it? We all persist in in, um, believing the lie that Adam and Eve swallowed, that, that we can be on a par with God. And so we're tempted to argue with God, we, we question his plans, we, we interpret his word in the way that we would like to see it, in the way we think it should be. But as it says later in Isaiah chapter 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is set apart from all he has made in his majesty. He's also set apart from all that is unclean or evil. He's set apart in his moral purity. In the first use of the word holy in the Bible, God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And he said, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. When he gives Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, he tells Moses not to allow the people to come up the mountain. He puts limits around the mountain and sets it apart as holy. In the tabernacle and the temple, there was the Holy of Holies, which only the high priest could enter, and only once a year, symbolizing the separateness, the moral purity of God. Another word for that is righteousness. Have a look back at um, the previous page in chapter 5, verse 16. It says there, The Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice, and the Holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. So when Isaiah saw God in his holiness, how did he respond? How is he affected by this vision? And how might it affect us? Well, God's holiness makes us aware of our unworthiness. The first thing we've seen is that Isaiah is in awe of God. He wants to praise him for his majesty. There's also this other response, isn't there? As Isaiah acknowledges God's majesty and holiness, he realizes just how small and insignificant that he is. And also just how morally impure he is. And he's shocked. 
Have a look at verse 5. He says, Woe to me, I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He's not just made aware of his insignificance, but his moral unworthiness. To have unclean lips is to be morally impure. As Jesus said himself, what comes out of the the mouth is an overflow of the heart. And Isaiah's mouth, his lips are unclean. Unclean means to be unfit to be in the presence of a holy God. And that is precisely where he is, in the presence of God. And that is frightening because he knows he's unworthy to be there. You might recall the the story of Peter in the the New Testament when Jesus gets into his fishing boat. He's uh, been fishing out all night and he hasn't caught a thing. And, And Jesus says to him, Peter, cast your nets on the other side. And Peter's saying, look, it's going to be a waste of time, Jesus, but if you must, I'll do that if you say so. And they haul in this huge catch of fish. And at that moment, he realizes that he's in the presence of God. And what he says is, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He knew he was unfit to be in the presence of God. Now, Isaiah could have just thought, well, at least I'm not as bad as the rest of the people of Israel. But he knows he can't distance himself from them, that he too is sinful. Degrees of sinfulness are unimportant. It's not how we compare with others, but how we compare to the perfect holiness of God. Is that which shows us our sinfulness. And what made Isaiah different from the other people of Israel was his willingness to acknowledge that he was sinful. And many of us who are Christians here this morning can also testify that the moment when we we really understood the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for our salvation, was the moment we realized our unworthiness. Up to that moment, we probably thought we were fairly decent. Um, Obviously, things we did that we knew we shouldn't do, things that we didn't do that we should have done. A bit like uh, with the... The Top Gear um, series, I don't know if you're fans of Top Gear. Um, some of you here, I'm sure, will be. I know Jim is a good fan of Top Gear. Um, but if on this program, what they do is they bring in a celebrity guest, they get them to do a lap, and they time it. They don't tell them what the time is. They bring them into the studio, and they show them the chart of fastest lap times. Here we are. And they say to them, so where do you think you would be on that chart? This is Jules Holland here. He thinks he should be top, obviously. Um, but if you look on that... Most people say, well, you know, I'm probably maybe middle. I'd hope to be a bit better than uh, Trevor Reeve, but, um, you know, probably not as, as high up as uh, Usain Bolt. They think themselves, you know, probably above average. Now, if there's no God, then it's fine just being above average in the top half. But if there is a God, then there's a problem, isn't there? Because now we're not measuring ourselves against other humans, We're measuring ourselves against perfection. And deep down, each of us knows that we're far from perfect. You know, we may be in the top half of the chart, but God is way off the chart. He's way off. Until we realize that God is way above us in holiness, we will have a small view of God. And a small view of God means that we have a big view of ourselves and our goodness. 
We will dismiss our seriousness of sin. We will dismiss the need for confession. We will satisfy ourselves with nominal religion. But what sort of God will be satisfied with a nominal religion, a nominal commitment? What sort of a God would accept someone who really thinks he's okay and not in need of forgiveness? The answer is a very small God. If we've truly had an encounter with the King, the Lord Almighty, as Isaiah did, then it leaves no room for half-hearted religion. It's all or nothing with God. The great news is that it actually doesn't matter where we are on that chart. We could be right at the top, where Jules Holland thinks he is. We could be right at the bottom. Because although we are unholy, God makes us holy. God makes us holy. Isaiah has realized the hopelessness of his situation. He's confessed his sinfulness, his unworthiness. It looks pretty desperate to him. But how does God respond? Have a look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What is going on here? Well, once we see ourselves as we really are and our need for God's help, then God flies to us. He opens his arms to us like a father with a prodigal son. And the fact that God has commanded the, the seraphs, the angels, to take the coal and touch the mouth of Isaiah is demonstrating that it is God who is doing something about our desperate situation. Coal comes from the altar, a fire where the people of Israel would have uh, been burning sacrifices to God as he commanded them to deal with their sin. But now he's taking it away forever. God is saying, I've done something about your separation from me. I've taken away your guilt. I've atoned for your sin. In the words of the first chapter of Isaiah, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. It is the grace of God that is available to all. And the question you may be asked is, well, how does God do that? I mean, uh, uh, obviously, the taking of a live coal and touching Isaiah's lips is, uh, is symbolic. What exactly did God do to make it possible for us to be forgiven? Well, the answer is he sent his son. He sent Jesus to die in our place. There had to be atonement in order for justice to be done. Someone had to pay the punishment in order for our sins to be wiped clean. And God said, the only person who can atone for the sins of the world is my son. Going back to the, the moral chart, there are many people who would obviously place themselves probably near the bottom of the chart, who actually think, well, they are beyond saving. Who go through life racked with guilt at something they may have done in the past, maybe their previous life, something they feel they need to atone for. And they feel that it's only them who can put it right. And if that is you here this morning, then you don't need to despair. Because the offer of forgiveness is open to all. However hard you try to atone for your own mistakes, you'll never succeed. But the good news is you don't need to, because Jesus has done it for you. 
And he just invites you to trust in him for your personal forgiveness, for your guilt to be taken away and your sin atoned for. And therefore we are made holy. We're not made sinless yet until we go to be with God in heaven. But we are acceptable in God's sight. We can enjoy a relationship with God. It doesn't matter whether you're on the, where you are on the chart. What matters is that you acknowledge that compared to God, you need his forgiveness. You need his help. You need to call out for him. Well, if God has already made us holy, then I guess the question that will come up in some people's minds is why does he tell us, both in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, why does he say, be holy? In 1 Peter, um, uh, in 1 it says this, it says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, he's referring here to the book of Leviticus, be holy because I am holy. Well, I think the answer to that is in the previous verse, um, because there it says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. If you have been made holy, you have been set apart by God. You now have a unique relationship with him, such that you can call God Father. You are his child. And that relationship has a, a certain way of living that goes with it. It involves living a morally upright life. But the relationship comes before the moral behavior. Before we are called to be good, we are called to be holy. If our idea of living the Christian life is following a set of rules, making sure we do some things and don't do others, then we've missed the point. There's a far more important issue going on here, and that is to whom do we belong? Where does our first loyalty lie? In Galatians, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. God's call to to be holy is a radical claim on our lives, but we do that in Christ. To be a follower of Jesus Christ requires us to die to our our fallen self-centered life so that we might live in him and for him. As Jesus says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. To be holy means that all we are and all we have belongs to God, not ourselves. And every aspect of our lives is devoted to him. If we are parents, we are devoting our children to God, which is what we saw this morning with Jim and Wendy, devoting Angus to God. What else does that look like, though, to be devoted to God? Well, let's go back to Isaiah to have a look at verse 8 of chapter 6. As there it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Note that it wasn't until Isaiah had, had confessed his sin, he'd been made holy, that he heard the voice of the Lord. He saw God, but he was high. He was distant above his created order. He was separate from it. 
And he had to be because of his perfect holiness. But now that Isaiah's been made right, right with him on account of Jesus, he's in his presence. He can hear him. And it's not just about hearing him, he's actually able to obey him. So when God asks that question, whom shall I send, who will go for us, the only response for Isaiah is to say, here am I. Send me. Do with me whatever you will. I am your obedient servant. Now it would be great just to leave the passage there and to simply say, are you prepared to say to God, send me? But the passage goes on. And it would be wrong to ignore it because God, without God tells Isaiah to go and tell the people, we're told that they won't hear and they won't understand. And in the cases we're thinking, well, this was just in Isaiah's time, actually it was exactly the same in Jesus' time. He quotes these words from Isaiah. And if people reject the message of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus brings, when he utters it from his own mouth, then what hope is there for us, you might think, if we are to proclaim the message of Jesus to a stubborn world? With all our stumbling over our words, trying to find what to say, the courage to even talk about Jesus. It is a tough mission, and that is why Isaiah says, For how long, O Lord? How long do I have to keep facing rejection? How long do I have to keep praying for those I love and long to be saved? How long do I have to put up with the feelings of frustration and guilt? And God says, we'll just try it for a couple of years and then see how it goes. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, look, he says, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. He says, keep on going. Don't give up. Keep persevering, even when it seems desperate. Because ultimately, I will build my church. Verse 13, as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be in the stump, will be the stump in the land. It may look like a stump now, but it will grow. And it's great to be doing the series in Acts in the evenings because there we see the, the mission unstoppable. The gospel is growing. Yes, there's persecution. Yes, there's opposition, as we'll see tonight. But the gospel is growing. So what does God expect from us then if we are already a follower of Christ? Because to be a Christian in the UK in the 21st century is hard work. It often feels like we're achieving nothing. What God expects from us when he says to be holy is to live a life that is devoted to Christ. Yes, you're living in this world, but you're also set apart from this world. You're in it, but not of it. And therefore, just ensure your life reflects that. Be an obedient child of God, your Father. Use all the things he's given you to grow in that relationship with him. So when we talk about... um, as pastors, when we encourage you to join home groups, to, to come to prayer meetings, to, to be regular at our Sunday services, to, 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 to read the Bible, to pray, to give, to serve, etc., etc. It's not just so we can feel good. It's because God has given us these things for our benefit. And they're there for us to take advantage of so we can grow in that relationship with him, so we can grow in holiness. They're not things that will make you right with God. 
Only Christ can do that. But they are resources that God has given you to help you grow in your relationship with him. And as we grow in that relationship, then our lives reflect his moral purity. Let me close with those words from 1 Peter. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, I am holy. Let's have a moment just to to reflect on what we've heard. Some quiet to do business with God. Let's do that in your own hearts. And I'll pray in a minute. Lord God, we acknowledge that you are a holy God. You are far above us in your majesty and your moral purity. We are unworthy to come into your presence. And yet we praise you that you have made us holy. And you've done that through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the love that prompted you to do that. We thank you that we are acceptable to you. We can come into your presence with great confidence. We can come to you with all our prayers, with all our needs, with all our burdens, Lord, and you take them from us. And Lord, with such a relationship with uh, uh, someone we can call Father, a perfect heavenly Father, we thank you that um, we can enjoy that relationship. And Lord, we want to reflect you in all of our dealings with uh, the world in which you've placed us. And so, Lord, help us to live lives that reflect your holiness. Lord, help us to come closer to you, to see you more and more in all your glory, that we might reflect that in our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.